0: It is our great, great, great delight to have Dr. Wayne Grudem back on the podcast. I will not take time to reference Dr. Grudem's CV, vita, Personalia, publications list because then we would be out of time. Other than to say, Wayne's been a friend and an encouragement, and uh, we have both walked interesting paths in our lives and ministry and health and pain and you know just the stuff of life. Wayne, thanks for joining us again.
1: Good to be with you, Michael.
0: I have this podcast that we do a special thing called Ask Dr. E, and people write me all kinds of interesting questions, and we then put them into an episode. So we thought we would call this one Dr. E Asks Dr. G. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) So these are the hard questions, Dr. Grudem, that I don't know how to answer. So I need to go to the subject matter experts. But let me just kind of rapid fire, lightning around, ask you a bunch of questions and let's just have a fun conversation and see where it goes. And I might interrupt you and you can sure interrupt me if you want, but two booklets that we are going to announce on in context here in the near future that you have written, what the Bible says about how to know the will of God and what the Bible says about abortion Euthanasia and end of life decisions. So, I just want to ask you a few questions on each of those books. Let's start with the will of God because you and I have been asked for decades, How do I discern God's will for my life? So, give us the quick one, two, three things you need to be aware of when you ask that question.
1: Well, I start out this booklet. I should say, Michael, the booklets are taken from my larger book, Christian Ethics, and their individual chapters. And there's a chapter on how to know God's will, which has proved helpful to people. The booklet says in knowing God's will, sometimes you have to make very quick decisions. And sometimes there are longer uh, processes that people go through to make a decision. And if you have to make a quick decision, you can't look at every factor involved individually and take some time on it. But sometimes you do have larger decisions such as a career change, marriage decision, what to major in, in college, what to do about a job, or moving to a different house. And people pray about those things, and I list, actually, a number of sources of information. One, the Bible. Two, knowledge about the situation. Three, knowledge about yourself. Four, advice from others. Those are sort of objective sources of information that will help us in guiding us in making a decision. But then the Bible talks about some, what we would call, more subjective input as well. One is from our conscience our sense of right and wrong. Number two would be from our heart. That is our deepest desires and preferences involving who God has made us to be and who he has called us to be. So conscience and heart. And then there's an immaterial aspect of our personality called our human spirits, not the Holy Spirit within us, but our spirit. Where, for instance, in Acts 17, Paul's spirit was provoked within him because he saw the city was full of idols. Or Mary, when she... Before she gave birth to Jesus, she came to visit Elizabeth, and she said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So we pay attention to our conscience, the sense of right and wrong, to our heart, and then to our spirit, and what our spirit is telling us about the spiritual dimensions of a situation. Then there's also guidance from the Holy Spirit, which we perceive the Holy Spirit brings something to mind brings a person to mind that we should call or visit or pray for, brings a situation to mind that we should give attention to, or perhaps brings to mind a passage of Scripture and guides us in moment-by-moment decisions. So there are some subjective factors and some objective factors, and they all combine in a sense of being able to know God's will.
0: Let me ask you, how do you guard from experiential spirituality, Christianity here, because I'm tracking with you, but I also know my own heart and my own nature and, you know, what we want. And it's very easy to say, you know, A plus B equals C and God opened this door and ergo I should walk through it. And you mentioned a key point, time. If we have a deadline, that accelerates the anxiety and the need to make a decision.
1: Yes. Well, the example I give is in the book of Genesis, when Joseph had been taken to Egypt, and was working in the house of an Egyptian official named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife was alone in the house. Joseph was working in the house, and she said, come lie with me, and he fled out of the house, but she had grabbed his cloak, or garment, and he fled and left it behind, because it was an instant decision that he had to make, and he made the right decision. So sometimes we don't have time to say what's going on in my heart, what's going on in my conscience, what does the Bible say, etc. So how do we guard against being misled by subjective factors? I think their advice from a wise spouse or family member, advice from friends can help us a lot, and counsel from a pastor, perhaps, or an elder in our church. So we don't go off and I mean too often encounter people who Feel the Lord has told them to do something, and they're sure about it, and they go off on their own with no confirmation from anybody else, and it makes a mess of their life. And I don't want to say that, Michael, but I also want not to exclude the reality of the Holy Spirit guiding us through an inner sense of the Holy Spirit directing us in one concern or another.
0: Well, and there are times, and again, with college students, with friends, young married couples, single people... You and I could tell stories all afternoon about, you know, wise counsel. And there are times I suspect for you, there have been for me when I've had a lot of wise counsel, but I would not be as eloquent in the way you have outlined it. But I would have said, you know, this is what I think I need to do, even against maybe good counsel. And other times I have been all eager and excited about X. And it's been these precise things. It's been especially wise men who I look to as mentors and, you know, people that know me well. And to say, no, Michael, that's not who you are. And I take that very seriously.
1: Yes, I think it's really important. Just now in this uh, middle of 2020, uh, we're coming on to an election season. And I have written some things in the past elections about what I think Christian principles would indicate regarding the way Christians should vote. And um, I'm seeking counsel from my wife and also from a group of couples that we meet with every other week, trusted couples, four other couples in addition to ourselves, asking them for advice and they're praying for me for wisdom on whether I should write some more online articles about politics or not. That's an example where there's no one size fits all, right or wrong answer. For every Christian, but it's a sense of knowing what God's individual calling is for me at this time, at this point in history, at this point in my life. And I should say I have three adult sons and their wives who are also valuable sources of counsel. They come from a different generation, a different perspective, but I want to hear what they're saying and thinking as well. Sure. The scripture that I wanted to say was uh, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have Romans 8 and Galatians 5 both talking about being led by the spirit. And that's something I seek to pay attention to and be aware of every day.
0: How do we discern between being led by the Spirit, you mentioned guidance to the Holy Spirit, and just our own penchants, our own desires, our own conclusions?
1: You know, I think it's something we get better at as we go through life. Hebrews 5, the last verse, says, it talks about mature Christians who have their faculties trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And I think as we go through the Christian life, we may think something is the Holy Spirit leading and then it is or it isn't. And by kind of a trial and error process, we grow in understanding how it is that the Spirit can bring scripture verses to mind or bring people or situations to mind. And when it's just coming from our own imagination. Mm
0: -hmm. I remember years ago writing at some length about the section in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul speaks of that he is appraised by no man, and he uses the illustration that which is spiritual appraises that. I'm doing this from very poor memory. And I remember coming up with the observation, and I'd love your feedback, correction, different opinion, about you know, without the Spirit of God, we can read, and I always refer to Umberto Casuto, who wrote this extraordinary commentary in the first 12 chapters of Genesis, but didn't believe any of it. And he had the mind of a Hebrew rabbinic scholar, but not the heart of a follower of Christ. And so it's of value to him as a piece of literature, but he can't ascribe value to it the way God intends. And I think as believers, we look upon scripture, and this is where I I don't want to demystify in the sense that we don't see God working, but demystify that you're not looking for some, you know, um, experience, but the Spirit indwells us. We read that, and if He bears witness to our spirit, we're sons of God, and He helps us ascribe value to the Word that we would not normally have seen.
1: Yeah, Michael, that's a, I really appreciate that. It reminds me that I should add to what we talked about about guidance, that especially in times when I'm reading my Bible and praying that I think the Holy Spirit brings things to mind. It helps me to remember to put something on my to-do list for the day or scratch off something that I shouldn't be working on that day. those are times when we're especially close to the Lord and we should be aware of his guidance from time to time.
0: Let's move on, because I do have hundreds of questions, that we don't have time for all those. Let's talk a little bit about these end-of-life decisions, abortion, euthanasia, and end-of-life. And just for folks that may not know, you have gone through a massive, massive update of your book on Christian ethics. And what was your final page count, Dr. Grudem?
1: In The textbook on Christian ethics?
0: Yeah, your final page count, 1,200 and—
1: 1240 or something like that I have to look.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so for those of us that want to know the details Dr. Grudem's got 1240 pages for you to track down. But I want to talk specifically about end of life decisions because this has become, you know, living wills and, you know, organ donations and quality of life and we have a whole new nomenclature in the past 2 decades that we didn't have. And the medical community is, it's, you know, it's their world, but speak to us about some of these things, an elderly parent, a person with advanced cancer, advanced, you know, whatever. And they go, well, why should I keep living? How do I make these decisions?
1: Well, first I've got to say, Michael, 1296 pages. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Well, the first thing is the uh, sixth commandment in Exodus 20 tells us you shall not murder. So it's never right for a Christian to intentionally grant a seriously ill person's wish that you would uh, actively put them to death, which is called euthanasia, not a very good term. But a terrible word,
0: choice. yes, terrible word. A good death, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So it's not morally valid for a Christian to participate in euthanasia. But as people grow older, there is a question of when health deteriorates and it looks as though there's no human hope of recovery, then should extraordinary means be used to try to prolong the process of dying? And there, there's a distinction between killing, which we shouldn't do, and letting die, which in many cases is what is right in God's sight, that the person wants to depart and be with Christ as Paul says in Philippians, and uh, we should weigh heavily that extraordinary means uh, keeping someone artificially alive on a mechanical respirator or something, which will cost extraordinary amounts of money, may not be the appropriate thing to do, but to let the person die, sometimes in scripture, like Jacob blesses his 12 sons, and then he lies down in his bed and falls asleep. It's accepting the end that God has appointed for him. Psalm 139, in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. And there will come a time when it seems to each one of us that time of our life on earth has come to an end and the days that God has written in his book for us to live on earth have come to an end and we joyfully go to meet him in, in heaven.
0: So we have a patient, a friend of yours and mine, who is advanced, let's say he's a mere 70, he has advanced cancer, his pain is uncontrollable by pain medications, he is insufferable, he is, other than knocking him out completely, and you're going to stand by the bedside and tell that wife he, you must let him suffer until he dies?
1: Well, I think that he needs to be given more pain medication to, to manage the pain and there is some strong medication michael that will have a secondary effect of perhaps slowing respiration or hastening death
0: well and this is what they do of course with you know children that are terminal is they basically you know uh, give them such large doses of pain medication that slows respiration down and they die and well, the question
1: is what is your primary intention right one your could argue intention... that's
0: one could argue that's euthanasia
1: well, is your primary intention alleviation of pain or putting the person to death? If the intention is to put the person to death, then it's wrong. If the intention is to bring the pain to a tolerable level, then I would say it's not wrong.
0: We have a growing trend that comes and goes. We saw you and I are old enough to remember Dr. Jack Kevorkian. Most perhaps are not, but Oregon was the first state in the country to legalize assisted suicide. Is there ever a time for assisted suicide?
1: No, I don't think so. And there's an interesting example in the Old Testament where Saul had been wounded Mm -hmm. in a battle. He was the king of Israel. He'd been wounded in battle. At least if we believe the story that was brought to King David by a young man who was at the battle, King Saul fell on his sword. He wanted to commit suicide because the Philistine armies were closing in on him and he would be, very ill-treated, and he didn't succeed in committing suicide, so he saw somebody nearby and said, I'll read it. Yeah, the young man. Stand beside me and kill me. This is in 2 Samuel 1. Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. And so this young man says, so I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. So... Here's a situation with a terminally ill patient, King Saul, no reasonable human hope of recovery. He was in extreme pain. And if he didn't die, he faced the prospect of more suffering from the Philistines. And number three, the patient clearly requested, even begged, that someone would put him to death. Mm -hmm. And to top it all off, it was a command from the head of government at that time because Saul was still the king. Mm -hmm. But when David hears about it, he declares the young man who has killed Saul is worthy of capital punishment and says to one of his servants, go execute him. And so David, a man after God's own heart, declares it's wrong to put to death a person who is terminally ill and who begs to be put to death and has no human hope of recovery. And I think that's a narrative example that confirms the fact that we are not to intentionally murder anyone, even if the person wants to be murdered
0: you brought it up so let's transition there and i mean you and i obviously would be on the same theological page but we also hear well-intentioned christians say well then capital punishment is murder and you know obviously the levitical law uh, we're not to murder and so help differentiate between or how do we differentiate between murder and then when the government is allowed to execute under capital punishment as David did in that example.
1: Yes, well, there's a difference between what individuals are allowed to do and what government is authorized to do. Romans 13 says civil authority does not bear the sword in vain. He's the agent of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. And so to bear the sword was a means of execution in the Roman Empire. And the uh, civil government has that authority. I think it's grounded back in Genesis 9 where God says to Noah, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made man. In other words, the shedding of blood was Hebrew expression for taking of someone's life. And he said, whoever murders, and that is taking someone's life, by human agents, by man, shall his blood be shed. That's an authorization. I think it gives a principle that allows a civil government even to carry out the ultimate penalty, that is capital punishment on a wrongdoer in cases of murder. So the uh, command you shall not murder, the Hebrew term there is never used for judicial execution or killing in war, except one place in a poetic example. But the Hebrew reader would not have understood capital punishment to be comprehended under the command you shall not murder. Different words are used normally to speak of those two different concepts.
0: Dr. Gritom, you have spent, goodness, 20-plus years, 30, writing and interacting with the egalitarian versus complementarian debate. (laughs) Yes. And I have heard you in all kinds of settings. I've read, I think, most of what you've written. I have a whole section on my shelf, probably four or five linear feet of your books on this area. And I remember you making a comment years ago It may have been to me personally or to a group. We won the war, but we lost all the battles. And if I remember the context for that was, you know, from a biblical theological standpoint, complementarianism, which for those maybe who don't know what we mean by that, equal value, distinct role when it comes to men and women. We have equal value before the Lord, but we have different roles. Versus egalitarian, equal value, equal role. Yet churches continue, at least in my sphere of knowledge, to move more and more into the egalitarian realm. What do you say to encourage folks in their, you know, people that love Jesus and they go to churches that are very egalitarian. And there's other issues that tend to go with that. But just parking on that one for a moment, what do you say to folks today
1: Well, there's several things in what you brought up, Michael. I think that the exegetical arguments, the arguments about the meaning of the words of Scripture and how they should be understood and applied today, I think the arguments for the complementarians are overwhelmingly persuasive and ultimately far superior to the attempts to evade the plain teaching of Scripture that has been promoted by the egalitarian cause. So just for sake of your listeners, by complementarian... I mean what you said, equal value with men and women, but different roles in that there's a unique headship role or leadership role for the husband in the family and for men in leadership as elders and pastors in a church. When churches stray from that and begin to have women pastors and elders, it time after time after time leads to more and more abandoning or straying away from the teaching of scripture on other culturally unpopular things today. And I documented that in a little book called Evangelical Feminism, The New Path to Liberalism, question mark. And I argue that it is. It's undermining the authority of scripture. But looking at the long course of history, there are always areas where popular culture differs with the teachings of scripture and it changes from generation to generation. But in this day and age, biblical teaching on manhood and womanhood is significantly opposed to the egalitarian trends in our culture today. And so I expect that churches that remain faithful to the word and have men only as elders and preaching pastors or equivalent to elders, will be blessed by God in the long run. And those that capitulate and give in to evangelical feminist pressures and cultural pressures will eventually not have God's blessing to the extent that they could have, had they been more faithful to scripture. I think they'll be diminished and stray more and more from scripture. So obedience to God in areas where the Bible differs from culture is its always a test for God's people, whether they'll be faithful to him or not. I was reading um, in the book of Joshua recently, where it says that God didn't drive all the Canaanites out of the land after the Israelites came in and took possession of the promised land. But God left some of the Canaanites there to test Israel, to see what was in their hearts. And in every generation, there are seemingly attractive teachings in the culture that seem appealing to Christians, but they're contrary to scripture. And the question is whether we'll be faithful or not. God is watching. And what we want is to be faithful to him and to his word.
0: I remember you bringing that up. I've taught through Judges a number of times, and it's striking in that passage. Of course, they did not obey God fully. Much of the land had not been taken, and a much bigger conversation. But uh, I said
1: Joshua, but it is in Judges. Yes. That's right. And, I'm and sorry. He,
0: that's all right. And he says, "Did not drive them out completely." But then he goes on and he says that they might be taught war, wow. and I remember teaching through that after 9-11 and saying, you know, the unsavory part of the way man looks at history is very different than the providential sovereignty of God. And these things are left there. And one could argue from a theological intellectual standpoint to say, you're going to have to learn to fight. Not to go kill people, but you have to learn to fight. We were talking to another guest recently, Wayne, And he made the comment about prophets had to have courage. And I thought, well, that's the duh lesson of the day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you're going to go tell Israel or Judah or a neighboring enemy, Nineveh, they're sinning, you're going to have to have some fiber. Am I going to obey God when, you know, the great majority is going to disagree with me? And, you know, I know your heart, Wayne, and I know you're not mad at these people, but it just breaks my heart and it grieves me when I see this sort of flagrant egalitarian push. And I'm with you. I, I made some outlandish comments years ago about the slippery slope of egalitarianism. And I'm sure your book is far more measured. That's one I need to read. I probably haven't. But the slide does seem to be somewhat irreparable and... You know, then someone has to come in and create reformation to bring that assembly or church or whatever it is back to the Bible.
1: Right, and for denominations, the Southern Baptist Convention was straying in a liberal direction in the 1970s and 1980s, and conservatives fought a voting and representation battle, not a physical battle, but fought to get Votes that would bring the denomination back to a more conservative view of Scripture and of manhood and womanhood. And the conservatives won that battle in terms of influencing the denomination and controlling its levers of power. Presbyterian Church in America as well as a large denomination. Both of those groups have remained very faithful to Scripture. Evangelical Free Church, again, in the same. Then many independent Bible churches out here in Arizona where I live and across other parts of the United States and the world. Every man faithful to God in their adherence to complementarian principles. And I think God continues to bless all of those groups and churches because of their faithfulness to him in this area. Another area that culture is, God is allowing culture to test us in is what we teach and preach about homosexuality. Another, I believe, is whether we will accept evolution even theistic evolution saying that evolution, evolutionary theory is true, that just the way God brought about the right. living things, and it just cannot be squared with the historicity of Genesis 1 to 3. So those are test areas. I suppose there are others, but those are hot button issues right now. Another one is lying and telling the truth. Mm. I just am reminded day after day how the leadership in China did not tell the truth about the coronavirus. And they're lying about the extent of it and the way it spread, prevented the world from taking preventive measures, and resulted in tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people dying, all because of falsehood.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, and this is one of the interesting parts of the tapestry, uh, or as uh, Derek Kidner says, we're all terribly nearsighted, inching along the face of a fresco. And we can't quite make it all out. And uh, <laughs> y- y- you wonder, uh, you know, in eternity how this will fare. Let me ask you a different line of question. When you look, and obviously we've talked about some things, and I'm certain your book on Christian ethics is, you know, a great compendium, the new, the revised one, of so many, a host of issues. But as Wayne Grudem looks at the church, and let's just talk about the West to begin with, top three concerns you have for. Where we are, what we're doing.
1: I have to say, at the outset, I'm not very good at making lists of top three of, of anything.
0: Well, okay, I'll rephrase the question. What are some of your main concerns? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, question. I'm concerned about capitulation to feminist or egalitarian ideology that we talked about. I'm concerned about the promotion of evolution as an acceptable alternative, which I think undercuts or nullifies. historicity of Genesis 1 to 3 and can't be reconciled with it. I'm concerned about not church leaders giving approval to homosexual conduct but remaining silent about homosexuality which is so strongly promoted in the culture right now. I'm hoping that in God's grace he brings a period of revival and renewal to his church in the United States and around the world but revival won't Come apart from repentance from sin. And people won't repent from sin unless they know what God's moral demands are, moral requirements are, and that they're falling short of them. And the only way they'll know about that is from the Bible if it's taught faithfully by faithful pastors. So I think we need more preaching about the evil of sin in all its forms. And we need warnings about people that there will come a day that when they'll all be accountable to God for decisions and choices they made in their life. Paul, the apostle, speaking to the philosophers in Athens, says the times of ignorance God overlooked, Mm. but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Paul says God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and that's, of course, Jesus. So there's judgment coming. And I don't think our culture, our society is sufficiently aware of that or concerned about it or fearful of standing guilty before God and having no answer for their guilt or their sin.
0: I've been going back and reading, as I told friends, I read all this in seminary, but I can't prove it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I've been going back and reading a lot of original stuff, Luther, Melanchthon. I'm reading Augustine's Confession as we speak. And one of the things that strikes me, Wayne, is in the context of, let's just say Augustine, for example, he had a common-law wife, he had you know, a child with her, and yet there came a point in his, quote, career when he had to make a decision whether he was going to follow the Word of God or continue to live in sin. The culture did not, at least from what I understand, did not really judge him or call him out the way we would today to say a pastor can't live in immorality and continue a ministry. Because it was so, it was just, not normative not the right word, but it wasn't a big deal. And yet he, and again, we could debate Augustine's, you know, some of his teachings, obviously. But the point being, the context in which we're raised, the frog in the kettle is so powerful. And the job that you and I and other people in ministry have is so interesting because, number one, people are living longer. Yeah. They're not afraid of death like they were in Luther's time and Melanchthon's time. And people died yeah. all the time.
1: Yeah, because the culture continually tells us everybody goes to heaven.
0: Right, right. And you've got this uh, amalgamation of so many things. We live longer. We have quality of life. We have drugs that take care of us. You know, people died in agony in uh, the Civil War. You don't have to go back that far. And it just, it just strikes me, H.G. Wells' Time Machine book, it just strikes me that— the further we go in advance of technology and ease and life being better, quote-unquote, the corollary between our sensitivity to sin, our walk with Christ, it seems to be diminished. The more creature comforts, the more technology, the more accessibility we have to information seems to work against our life of faith.
1: I agree, Michael, but I think it doesn't have to be that way because I think that what you call creature comforts the air conditioning that I have here in Arizona, the car that I'm able to drive, the airplane that I'm able to fly on to get other places. But those things are not in themselves evil. They're right. they're blessings from God, which result from the abundant resources that he's planted for us in the earth and then human wisdom in developing those, which is a gift from God as well. All the result of the command to Adam and Eve to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. So these are good things, but what we need is for God to to send us widespread sense of repentance for sin that is still in our lives and widespread gratitude to God for the blessings that he has given to us, even material blessings in this life, so that we get things in right perspective and in right focus.
0: How do you teach your uh, young seminarians, and I'm thinking specifically of men who may end up in ministry where they're teaching the Bible in a local church or they're missionaries on a field, or I'm thinking specifically of men, how do you teach them to not merely have the courage, but in and I don't like this word, but work with me, the messaging of how they say what they say about egalitarian, LGBTQAI, our casual nature towards sin, our, you know, so forth and so on. Are you changing your pedagogy in the way you help them? Because, you know, one one thing about Wayne Grudem, he's always been kind. You know, you're a kind person. You speak. You're not angry. I saw you in a setting that I won't name the principles, but there were some pretty big hitters on the other side of this argument of egalitarian v. complementarian. And you were kind, you were loving, and it's easy for me and others to get kind of stirred up and get a little angry and heated and bulldogmatic. That's a rambling question, but I think you understand what I'm asking you.
1: Yeah, Paul, the apostle again says, we are to be correcting our opponents with gentleness because God may grant them to come to a knowledge of the truth. So we have to keep that in mind. James says, the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God so our anger at others is not productive, generally. A wise veteran pastor said once, he had been many years a successful pastor and then was a seminary teacher with me in Illinois. And he said, as a pastor, you can make a lot of mistakes. But the bottom line is, your people know if you love them. And uh, if you love them, they'll forgive a lot. Mm. And I think in speaking about sin... There's a difference between a harsh rebuke that is generated out of anger or frustration and sorrowful rebuke that feels love and expresses love, genuine love for the people involved in sin. So our attitude in those situations, our attitude of heart will come across.
0: I received a question just today on Ask Dr. E., and I have an answer, but I've got the expert, so I'm going to read it to Dr. Grudem and get Dr. Grudem to respond. (laughs) It says, we know God's power and presence moved and worked through individuals and nations in the line of history in the Hebrew nation because we have scripture. Was he also moving and working as mightily through people or other people groups in other parts of the world? I think I know the answer, but if he did, do quote their close quote ancient writings line up with ours, etc.? This line of pondering goes on to different offshoots, but I think you can see where I'm going. And then he says, I bet the answer is we really don't know. (laughs) But I know what I would say, but I'd rather have the expert, Dr. Grudem, give me some counsel. No, no, I don't know if I'm going to give you the right answer or not. (laughs) Well, it's an answer, right? <laughs>
1: you, you, you set me up for um, failing the quiz here.
0: Well, You know, I tell pastors I did a workshop some time ago, and I said, you know, you would do well to use the phrase seems to me a lot more often. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me.
1: <laughs> well, I think we have to start by saying what is fair for God to do. What is fair for God to do is to... Speak to and save no one. Send us
0: all to hell, right.
1: All the whole human race. And that's what happened with angels who sinned and rebelled against him, perhaps hinted at in one passage of scripture, perhaps. Sure. A third of the angels, and there's no chance of salvation for them. They're demons and they're condemned forever. So what's fair for God is to save no one. Now, if he saves five people out of all history, that's grace, that's mercy. If he saves a 100. That's amazing, grace and what he has done in fact is not save just five or just 100 but a great multitude whom no one can count from every tribe and nation and people and tongue millions upon millions upon millions of people have been brought to salvation through the time of the old testament through looking forward to the messiah and trusting in the messiah to come in time of the new testament we know about jesus life death and resurrection through looking back at what he has done and trusting Him as a present living Savior who is with us, trusting Him for forgiveness of sins and for our salvation. So that's where we have a large overview. I don't think there's any indication that God was speaking to or working with or among or calling to Himself people from other nations.
0: Well, of course, you know, prior to the table of nations, we don't have this diaspora, we might call it in the New Testament, we don't have this You know, we had a people group that came out of somewhere in the Middle East where Adam and Eve and his progeny come from. And so I think that's one thing to keep in mind that these, you know, the Chinese dynasty or the Egyptian dynasties, those were obviously offshoots of if we believe in a little creation of the first man and woman. And um, it's the table of nations that gums things up with uh, Babel and makes your job and mine harder when we teach the Bible in Hebrew and Greek, right?
1: Well, oh, good, Michael. I'm, did I get the right answer? <laughs> what did you say? Who am
0: I to joust with Dr. Grudem? Yes, well, sir. You're, you're certainly a
1: wise Bible teacher.
0: Well, so let me ask you a final question. I have some dear friends with Johnny Erickson Tata and Ken Tata, and Cindy and I have become dear friends over the years, and we're part of a small group of people that's called Johnny's Pain Pals. And many of these men and women are in such intractable illness and pain. And I mean, it's pejorative, but it's metaphorically true. I quote, take my shoes off close quote. When I read their entries on this private page, they are otherworldly in the way they face their one woman lives in another country. She's bed bound. She has no window in her room. She has a minimal amount of time a day. She can work her keyboard her parents are in their 80s. They have no money. I mean, you can't make it worse, and she's been bedbound for years. Her attitude is otherworldly. She sure. never complains. She encourages the rest of us, and I'm ambulatory and so forth and so on. So, And so, again, this is sort of this long preface to my question. We're so poor at dealing with pain and suffering, and you and Margaret have your own personal share of health challenges. Most of us will as we age. But how do you encourage the body of Christ not to look at this in a maudlin fashion or a fatalistic fashion or, you know, and and you and I've talked to people, well, I can't do what I used to do, and I don't know why God has me here, and why don't I just die? I'd just like to hear some personal reflections, encouragement, and wisdom from, you know, you sit at this the feet of the Lord. You do a Parkinson's. And it's a degenerative situation. God willing, it will not be bad, but it might. And I deal with chronic pain in a back that doesn't cooperate, and it might get worse and worse and worse. In some respects, it is. This is the human condition, and we're poor at being faithful and obedient. Help us out. Land our time together, Dr. Grudem, and encourage us, rebuke us, <laughs> call us to repentance. What do we need to do as we face this ourselves and when we watch our loved ones face it.
1: Well, Michael, thank you for your care and your concern. And yes, I have had Parkinson's disease for nearly four and a half years now since diagnosis, but the symptoms, the tremors and other symptoms have been very mild so far compared to uh, many people that have Parkinson's. And my doctor says every patient is different. So I'm thankful to God. Many people have been praying and God has given me strength and I can continue to work and to teach and to write at this point without much hindrance from the Parkinson's. I don't know if that'll continue, but what I thought of when you were leading up to this question was a verse that has come back to my mind a number of times in the last several days, Psalm 139, 16. In your book were written, every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so I used to think, oh, that verse says God has put in his calendar the date that we'll die. But it says more than that. It Mm. doesn't say just the date that we'll die. It says in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. So that's individual days that we're living. And that means today is a day that God has formed for me. The Hebrew word there for formed, yatsar, it's used of God forming man from dust of the ground, God forming the beasts of the field in the creation narrative. It's used in the Psalms, in Psalm, I believe, 96. He who formed the eye, does he not see? The word formed it's applied to God talks about detailed, wise, incredibly skillful, intricate planning and carrying out of a plan to make something that is in accordance with his purpose and his will. And God has formed, I think Psalm 139, 16 says, God has formed the days of my life and written them in his book ahead of time when I wasn't even born. When in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so this day, I have a couple of hours coming up with online video teaching and Some other things I've got planned for the rest of the day. But this is a day that I can enter into or continue on in with great trust in God that he has formed, he has good plans for me and he's formed purposefully the events that I will encounter this day and he'll stand beside me and things will work according to Romans 828, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So that's a great encouragement to me, whether the future life on earth that I have, and I'm 72, whether I live to 73 or 83 or 93 or 103, those days that God has planned in his book and formed for me, they'll be for my good and his glory. And uh, that's an exciting prospect to look forward to.
0: You mentioned the term form there. There is another verb that jumps off at me. It's in verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And that Uh Hebrew stem, ugolem, is the word we get embryo from.
1: Hmm. Wasn't aware of that, Michael. So
0: your eyes have seen my unformed embryo structure. Yeah. Isn't that interesting?
1: Well, it means that our physical bodies are the ones that God Gave to us. Yeah, and, but
0: before we were there, before that embryo was there, that's the striking part of that. And just to dovetail, that's a great insight, the one I appeal to just because I'm well enough hearing you talk about this. You know, I need a reminder, Doc. I need a reminder. And I am look at it, a passage I send to people all the time, and I can't read it without it dismantling me. It's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and of all, the God of all comfort. And then you know how he does this. He goes back and forth. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Hmm. For just, and this is the hard one for me, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance... And I remember asking Johnny Erickson Todd of this. I said, can you and I ever really say we suffer like Christ or we suffer for Christ? Oh, shudder the thought. But he continues, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. And then he goes back to this parallel again. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Or if we're comforted, it's for your comfort. Which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings we also suffer. Mm. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing as you are sharers of our suffering, so also sharers of our comfort. Mm. And I go back to that again and again and again and we've already you know, we know from chapter eleven how he was beaten and shipwrecked and, you know, imprisoned and cold and ill and so forth. And here's a man who probably Parkinson's and back pain and who knows what else rolled together, you know, we're a hangnail compared to what he endured, right? And yet that's how he writes this is if I'm comforted, it's so when you're afflicted you'll know that. And if I have comfort, I want to remind you that God's going to comfort you. And if mm. I suffer, then you may suffer too, but we'll suffer together. It's just a very interesting and very unwestern discussed topic. <laughs> yeah, thank, you. thank you so much, man. No, thank you so much. Dr. Wayne Grudem, prince of an expositor, prince of a friend. He loves Christ in an evident way. You need to be familiar with his books. There, we'll have on the link on our website more information about Dr. Gruden, what you can find out. Your new book on your revised book on Christian ethics is available when Dr. Gruden? The
1: Christian ethics is available now. The new one? Okay. Okay. I have another book called Systematic Theology. You know, that little book, I think
0: I have that book on my, you know, somewhere holding a door open. I'm kidding. Well, that's
1: coming out, I believe, in November as a second edition
0: and that one is how many pages
1: it's now 1260 or 1290 it'll be about 1400 when it comes out why
0: didn't you do like three volumes i mean come on
1: (laughs) the um, publisher doesn't like i know i'm I'm just
0: teasing i'm just teasing dr grudem i want to tell you one thing i love you my brother
1: thank you michael it's so good to be with you and i enjoyed our conversation
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hole, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed
1: by Chad Cates and Tycho.